Life and community is no less than a necessity for us. It is an inescapable must that determines everything we do and think. Yet, it is not our good intentions or efforts that have been decisive in our choosing this way of life. Rather, we have been overwhelmed by a certainty, a certainty that has its origin and power in the source, with a capital S, of everything that exists. God has called us to community, and we must live in community. Thank you, Ben. Is this on? Let me say that again. God has called us to community, and we must live in community. Amen. Well, let, let me... Uh, did you just genuflect back there, Luke? Oh, I don't know. What Maybe you were straight. Look like we're already getting into the liturgy stuff. Um, where's Matt? We lost him. That's okay. Guys, just hop in anywhere you want. I was supposed to share for about 20 or 30 minutes before they got started because I knew when they got started, I would want to pop in at every, every, every little thing. So that's why I didn't want to sit on the panel. You can come on up if you want to, Matt. Uh, and, and really, you guys hop in wherever you want. Uh, one of the things I ask them to do is, is uh, not only review the book, but identify places where we have uh, been doing these things. Um, and so let me tell you where, where the idea for this weekend came from. Steve Humble, who is part of our extended eldership, uh, he, he's real heady and he reads books all the time. And he, he was reading all of these books, plus a couple of others, and he sent out a, uh, an email and included a number of people on it, and I think all of these guys eventually, did you get included on it, Dan, the one Steve was doing? I think so. Uh, but they were going back and forth talking about all these ideas, and I just wanted these guys to be in on that, and I got really, really angry uh, as I saw the discussion go on, uh, because there's all of these heady ideas floating around and people are discussing them. And like, I believe it was Chad who said, or maybe Dan, who said, these are not new ideas. And everybody was addressing them like, oh, wow, classical education. Yeah, 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 well, that's really important. We ought to do that. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> duh. And so much of what these guys are addressing um, are really in the DNA of how we begin as a community. So I wanted to go back and talk to you a little bit about just community itself. Um, and uh, I'm going to try to go down through here. I, as they were talking, I'm like, I can't believe I didn't just stand up and walk up here. I mean, th they did such a great job of identifying the things that are important for us to understand and relate to. Um, and uh, so I'm so proud of myself for keeping my mouth shut. Uh, a big part of our heart when we got started was, was I think we knew God, and we saw that the people of God were failing in representing him, especially in his unity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, and the, uh, you know, the almost unknowable mystery of his unity, which we thought was quite knowable, you know. Um, 
to, to us, the, the Trinity wasn't a ministry, uh, a mystery. It was a ministry, but it, but, but it wasn't a mystery. Uh, it, it was the reality of the way life exists. And, and if you can't understand the oneness and the unity of God, of course, we'll never plumb the depths of it. How can you understand Christianity uh, if, if you don't understand the triune God? Um, and for us, that would have been played out in church. But for so many of us uh, in, in growing up, the unity and the trinity and the oneness of God was, was far from played out. It was kicked out. Uh, and, and I think, again, somebody up here said that that the real, and maybe it was Dreher, I don't know who said it, y'all pipe in to, to clear things up, but you know, somebody up here uh, said that the real issue is to become that and to demonstrate that, and that is our witness. And so we really believed that God could do that. We believed in the power and the ability of God to work inside of us and cause us to become unified and one with each other so that when people walked in, the anointing of the Holy Spirit was there. And so as we've developed over the years, and we'll talk about some of these things later, but we have been just dead on clear if there is division, root it out and deal with it. And uh, if you read anything about community, uh, you will read that this is a real key, that those things are going to come God is going to allow them to come, and the purpose is to purify us and make us get past those and become more like him. Um, and so we were committed to that. And so, so as you go to the Bible and say, well, if everything's splitting up and, and dividing and going on, how should we live? You can't, you can't miss Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And so those became real keys to us. Um, so this was in the, the early 70s, uh, late 70s. And what's going on now is very similar to what was going on through the 60s. Culture was falling apart. The, what happened in the 60s is just, just as the 60s and the beginning of the 70s is just as, as a, Extreme is what's going on now. It prepared the thing that people are seeing. And, you know, these guys have said that all these books are floating around. Well, people have been saying this for years and years and years. It really started coming to a head in the end of the 60s because there were things you could see in the culture that were like, whoa, I can't believe this is going on. So people who were really seeking God thought we need to do something about this. And there was a lot of talk at that time about community. Uh, I wish Ron Schwartz was here. Mark is here. Both Mark and uh, Ron lived in community uh, during those years. Uh, and there were a lot of communities that evolved. And we realized that God had called us to be a community, that we needed to live a common life. And so in, in, in trying to do that, we were looking at some of these groups. Uh, Ron was in Youth with a Mission. Uh, which uh, they had a, a sister ministry, which was next door to Last Day's ministry, which is where, where Mark lived uh, for a while. And so uh, we got connected with them. We were very connected with the Youth with Mission. They asked us to be their campus ministry here in Kentucky. And a big part of what was appealing to us was 
their their idea of community. Um, as we as we you know kept trying to find out how we should do community, another group that we connected with was Christian Growth Ministries, which is uh, Covenant which Steve Humble was one of the pastors there. One of the original guys who was outside eldership for us was a covenant guy, John Meadows. And so we were trying to relate to that, um, and we, we learned a lot from the covenant guys. You have a lot of DNA child training. A lot of it came uh, through Paul Petrie and a lot of the things that he shared, the fatherhood of God. Uh, you have a lot of DNA in YWAM teaching, knowing God in relationship. Uh, and the radical edge that we have, I would say a lot of it does come uh, from, from Keith Green and him cultivating, um, you know, an approach to evangelism based in, you know, uh, Finney and uh, Booth and those guys. So uh, we have a lot of roots in ex what used to exist as, as community. But again, the point I want to make is what was happening at that time was people were seeing the problem in society, and they realized they needed to build a community within that society that could be what God wanted them to be and in some way create some isolation from the world or protection from the world, especially for their kids. But we didn't really jump on any of those communities for some specific reasons, and I want to share those with you, uh, right or wrong. The reason that we did not go ahead and become uh, a youth with a mission uh, based on campus is that we were convicted that what the Bible described was a church and church structure with elders, deacons, pastors. And so through the 50s, and 60s, Campus Crusade, InterVarsity, Navigators, they were all seeing the need for discipleship. These groups that got started in the late 60s, they were taking discipleship, bringing that into community, and it was really happening. It was exciting. Uh, the very first, pl first place I was involved in a community, and I was, I was considered a friend of the community, was Maranatha Ministries International. And you know, I could tell you a lot of stories about Maranatha in the early days, uh, but they had houses. They called them staff houses, but I think everybody in Maranatha was on staff. It's kind of like us. Um, and so uh, they had the guy's house. Uh, and, and Karen, it's interesting. I just remembered as I was thinking about this, uh, one day they borrowed my pellet rifle so they could kill the squirrels that kept getting into their, their staff house. Um, if you don't know why that's funny, uh, the girl's house is, and the guy's back house is full of squirrels. But anyway, I think that's part of community. Um, the squ at least the, squ the, the squirrels are attracted. I know Billy Graham used to preach to squirrels. We, we are defined, a community is typically defined by its enemy. Having a common enemy is important. Yeah. <laughs> So again, I think desperate times help us understand the need for community. The problem is so many of those communities went through chaos. At the same time that there was Christian community evolving, there was also other communes that were evolving. You'll, you'll remember Waco, uh, the Branch Davidians. Uh, you'll some of you may have read in history about Jonestown. 
uh, a group of people that wanted to live in community. They ended up all committing su suicide. We, yeah. As a country, we have made cults from the beginning. It goes way back. Yeah. It's not just in the last hundred years, but That's true. We, we have a deep history of spinning off these cultish communes. Yes, exactly. Mormons. Mormons, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, the tragic point in that is it's some of the excesses that led to those cults were present in the Christian communities that were getting started. It was, it was a landmine. It, it was, it was, a, it was a, a minefield in trying to create Christian community. How do you do it? And if you go online and the ones that have made it through and are successful today, for every positive article you find about them, you will find people who left that community, called it a cult, and are on a tirade against it. So they were doing a radical thing, and Steve Humble and I have talked long and hard. We have been able to avoid some of the excesses that would kill us. And so let me share with you a few things about our community that I think are very important uh, for you to understand. Um, Go down to the last paragraph. Most bona fide communities have an order and covenant that people sign. And I put, I, I put one you would really enjoy reading about uh, Bruderhof. Um, you'll see a lot of us in it. Um, but the thing about Bruderhof is they are Anabaptists. And those communities have been real successful. That would be like the Amish, the Hutterites. By the way, we visited some, some of those. Brenda and I visited a Hutterite community up in Canada. Uh, we were able to go and eat with them. Uh, and uh, also in Pennsylvania, I believe. Was it Pennsylvania where we went to the Amish community? Um, and so just trying to find out how, how these people live. But there's two things that are real common. Uh, one is communal living, and the other is uh, a common purse. So a lot of these have been successful over the years they have a community purse. In other words, everybody works, but all the money goes into a kitty. Um, and also, they have what Maranatha called staff houses, people where they live together, and oftentimes two families, three families will live together. Uh, the community that Steve Humble was in, and Dr. Reitz was in, a sister community, uh, had housing like that. Um, so here's the two things about that. We believe in communal living, and we believe in a common purse. You may not know this, but if you are a part of this community, you are part of a common purse. Um, when we were developing, obviously we talked about the idea of living together together and pooling all of our resources together. Jesus People USA did that, and several others, and we considered that but for reasons that I, you know, I don't have time to go into, um, we chose not to do that, but to want to live the spirit of it. And so here's how we decided we would do it, that each of us would decide my money belongs to God. We don't tithe in this church. We believe that running the church should take about 10%. And so we give that to run the church. But the rest of our money belongs to the brothers and sisters. So I live my life 
administrating my money on your behalf. And that's the way we must live. Some of the things that we talked about early on is uh, that I'm not going to buy a new couch if you have no couch. I'm not going to go on vacation if you can't afford it unless I can take you with me and pay for it. This is the way we think. This is the way the old members in the church think. I'm not so sure that that has got passed on. One of the things we used to do, I did it two or three times, is we'd show up at a meeting like this. I'd get a big box, and I'd say, okay, let's, uh, let's pass the box around, and it looks like the food may have arrived. Uh, that's what I'd do. I'd get the box out, and I'd say, it looks like the food may have arrived. <laughs> Somebody, oh, Susan, thank you. You're in the right place. It doesn't matter what you're looking for. You're in the right place right here, right now. <laughs> hey, Ben. Ben, will you shut those doors? Uh, this is an important time, so try not to get distracted. Um, and I think this is something that we need to restore. But you need to understand that the older members have sacrificed greatly for things. That when there is a need in the body, they do without to supply the need. And that has always been the standard. Um, so I won't say anything more about that. You can think on it, and you can, you know, we, we talked long and hard about it. Uh, but I know that there, there are members in the body who actually forego getting a new car so they can pitch in to buy a car for somebody else that needs one more than them. Um, and I think if you're in a community where you, where you enjoy the benefit of that, you don't realize that at some place you've got to come into the maturity where all of a sudden you're not trying to get the next house, a bigger house, a better house, a nicer car, but it's time for you to stop where you are because we do think everybody should take care of themselves and then begin to think, hmm, maybe I'm raising my standard of living before I see the need of my brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? So we have a common purse. We always have. Um, are you a part of the community is the question. Um, the second thing is uh, communal living. I mean, these two things are real consistent in the successful communities. Um, but because we are in America and because we are where we are, as we prayed through it and thought about it, we decided, yes, we are going to live communally. But it's got to be a matter of daily choice. Uh, I remember one of the fights that I had with the women over and over and over again was, ladies, everybody has to go grocery shopping. Go together. I did not win that battle. <laughs> and the older women are looking at me and they are laughing their heads off. But, but, and, and, I'm not telling you anything that you're not going to read in all this literature. The cars that we have, the mobility that we have, uh, the ability to have our own houses and the lack of need, uh, that is what keeps us from needing to be together. So you've got two ways to do it. You can either, you know, <laughs> sign a contract and move in together and do it, or you can be very, very disciplined, and you can choose. 
you can choose to live communally. And there are things I do all the time that are my choice to live communally. Bill knows one of them. A lot of times if there is an event, and Chad knows one of them, it's the same one. If there's an event, I text them and say, because Bill used to live close, would you like me to pick me up or can you pick me up? It's not because I need a ride. It's because I need to be with you. Um, and so that's just one small thing. There's a hundred things you could do to make your life be thrown together. And so I listed a few. Um, we, we try to promote that. Um, consider the needs of others before servicing one's own needs. Maintain a respect and deference to the calendar of the church. Let me just go ahead and say something about that. When we choose to do things as a church, you should be there. You should rearrange your life to be there and not complain. Remember, the alternative is to live together. And so the things that we try to do to get us all together, they're very small things. The problem is we've filled our life so full with other things that are, that are personal and individual that church things infringe on my individuality. Well, again, if you lived in community, everybody would be doing that. They get together and eat every day. So I think we have a lot to do in moving back toward really being communal people. So those two things are real, real important, okay? Um, church calendar, we encourage meals together, vacationing together, and work together. Let me say this real quick about work. Um, you know, there's a real balance uh, between work and ideas, um, and I've really tried to promote in our community the, the dignity of work and the need for work. Um, one of the things that if, if I'm, uh, I, I believe most of the guys that I work with when I'm discipling them is I try to provide opportunity for them to work hard. I know for my sons it was important uh, to, to create uh, a means for them to work hard, to sweat. Um, and uh, the, the book that Dan mentioned, uh, Ideas Have Consequences, that guy was actually from Kentucky. That's why I like him so much. But really what he was talking about were ideas around work and trans what was going on in our culture as we left an agricultural community, an agricultural lifestyle. He was part of the agrarians. And how that shaped and formed our lives, and we did not figure out how to continue working hard. And so, you know, you can theorize about working hard, but how many times did you sweat last week? You know, that's one of the reasons I was so happy about the camp. You know, one of the things that excited me most about trying to get the camp going was that Dan volunteered to be in, in, in charge of maintenance. Uh, because one of my concerns for Dan would be that he would become an intellectual, uh, but he wouldn't throw his back into the work, and he would find ways to, to slip around it. And when he volunteered, I thought, 
how perfect can that be? Um, and so I've really enjoyed watching him, you know, sort of, sort of figure out how to do a lot of things and to, and to learn how to really work. As a matter of fact, I re-engaged with CTS this summer uh, to be with Dan just because I wanted to be part of that. And so there's, there's a couple of things in the church that I think we need to be aware of about work and intellectuality. We will not become known as an intellectual church. Period. We will not become known as a redneck, blue-collar church. Period. We respect both deeply, and they're all necessary. Does that make sense? And so, you rednecks who don't respect the deep study and the philosophical underpinnings of the church, you probably need to repent and receive the gift that God has given us. We probably need to repent and accept the gift that God has given us. Um, and um, the intellectuals among us, you need to make sure that you don't roll the work off on the rednecks and that you put your back into it and you engage until the day you die. Uh, one, of, one of the greatest, one of the greatest um, testimonies to me was an old man who was about 68, 70 years old. A tent revival had just finished. Uh, he was the pastor of the, one of the largest churches in Louisville. I think it was the largest church at that time. And uh, I went to help set up chairs, and he was up in the truck, a 68-year-old guy, and he was moving chairs. He had just preached to a revival of 5,000 people. And he was up in the truck loading the chairs 15 minutes later. I'm 62. Um, and so, um, again, ideas have consequences. Weaver, he was saying that, yeah, these, we understand the philosophy of work, but how do you do it? How do you get involved? Um, I think our camp is a great opportunity for that. Um, I think there should be some people who aren't just going and doing a project but there should be a whole team of people who see that as part of their discipleship going out there and spending back-breaking days getting that thing going. I, I don't know where else we can do it other than Patrick's, and you get paid if you go over there, so that doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> and you get paid too much, by the way. But anyway, um, seems like there was one other thing that was mentioned um, that I wanted to... It's not in here, but anyway, so those, those three things, work, um, community, and a common purse. Think about those. We, we have got to, especially with the, the second or the third generation, you, you've got to come to that place. You've got to strip yourself from the American way of thinking and independence, and it is so hard. It was very hard with 15 or 20 people to try to get our lives all moving together. And so you have got to just do it. And, and I'm just mentioning these things. All right. Um, this weekend we will talk about our American culture and the growing need for community as both protection and witness. Okay? A lot of this alarmism that they, they're talking about, uh, that's not why we became a community. We became a community because we saw it in the Word of God. 
and uh, that it, it was his way of life. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. So many of the things that these, these books are calling for, we've practiced for years. And it's important to note that much of what we do was not a reaction against the world as much as an exegetical and mystical revelation from God. By that I mean we sought God in prayer and in his word to find his desire. It is encouraging to see that his desire for his people is also the solution to the escalating chaos in our culture. So what we're doing is not, oh man, how can we protect ourselves from the world? It is, how would God have us live? And it just so happens that that protects us from the world. So I, 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 would really, I would really encourage everybody not to explore ideas and say, what should we do? I would encourage everybody to stop and go back and say, what has been what we're doing? And how have I missed that? And how can I become a part of it? Uh, I teach two classes at Mars Hill. The first one is Kentucky history. And uh, let, me, let me just read. I'll send this to everybody. Why study Kentucky history? To be introduced for the reason for studying history in general. To receive an introduction to developing a Christian worldview. And there's a chapter on worldview. Study the development of Kentucky, get an overview of U.S. history, become aware of current events in the state of Kentucky, and develop an understanding of the part our students should play in the future of Kentucky. And so we go through uh, four different characters. We go through Esther, who needed to receive an understanding that she was born for this time. The sons of Issachar, it says, they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. And I always like to add this, and all the brethren followed them. And so from day one, we are seeding in Mars Hill to our kids, you need to understand the culture. You need to understand how you live in this culture. And in the end, people will see it, and they will want to follow it. We also talk about Daniel. Uh, Winky Prattney wrote a book called The Daniel Files, and it basically explains how we in a foreign culture, <laughs> the United States of America, can live our life in such a way to influence it. And if, if you see the original papers when we wrote uh, sort of an introduction to Mars Hill, it says our model is a, is a, it is a combined model of both Jewish and classical education. And by Jewish, what, what we meant when we said that was back then when Alfred Edersheim was still in vogue, uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were interpreted, um, he described how education, child training took place in Jewish community. And it was under the tutelage of the local rabbi with all the kids together, the parents being responsible to get their sons to the place of bar mitzvah. And so that Jewish part of our education is this. You have men uh, who are like rabbis, who are teachers, 
who can lead in the education of your children, but it's the parent's responsibility to make sure they learn those things. And by the way, the book I use uh, was uh, in, in Kentucky history is a book that was written by a woman uh, who was steeped in the classics. And as you do Kentucky history uh, in this book, it was the 1896 book that was written for Kentucky history uh, in the public schools, you will see throughout comments about Kentuckians and their character. And she is coming back and she is reinforcing what we learned through a classical education. Um, but more specifically for me, literature. Literature, basically, basically what it is, it is a way for us to understand the reality of who human beings are and how they exist and therefore how they should be governed. And if, if, if you have any, any sense of a classical education and you'll read this particular history, you'll say, oh, wow, this lady knew how to teach history and to bring an understanding of interpreting that history in a way that it highlights the moral high ground. Uh, her view on slavery notwithstanding. That, you know, I explained that to the class. But So does that make sense? Um, so let's see, who's the, who's the last one? Esther, Daniel, oh yeah, and then King David. Um, it just basically said that in his generation, he served the purposes of God. Then he died and slept with his fathers. And so we begin at Mars Hill <laughs> with much of what these guys are calling for that should be done. And then the last class I teach, I teach in conjunction with Chad. And uh, last year, or maybe two years ago, I don't remember, I asked him to make uh, a particular book. Uh, uh, it's, it's six great ideas. And the, the, the six ideas are truth, good, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful. That's not new. If you read our original documents... Uh, you will see that, that our goal was to do that. And Dan is exactly right. Uh, for me, the first place that we, we wanted to establish the beautiful was in literature because literature itself is a deep expression of beauty. Uh, in literature, you don't just give ideas, but the beauty of the work communicates the truth in a way that just giving people an idea could never do it. I'm extremely limited in the rest of the beauty. I'm limited in literature, but I'm really limited in singing and dancing and all that stuff. But just, just to give you an idea, when someone stepped up and said, I have a real vision for something beautiful, we called the whole church behind it. And if anybody here has an idea for the beautiful that you want to promote, we're all about it. Uh, but we need... Uh, those people among us that, that have the ability uh, to step up and to grab that. I appreciate what Ben's doing with our worship. Uh, he is trying to weed out the shallow, uh, not that the words are shallow or not that the worship is shallow, uh, but the, the, well, I can't even explain it. But anyway, you know, that music stuff. <laughs> uh, he has really led our team in trying to, to incorporate songs that, that are what? Yeah, theologically deep, 
but also aesthetically or musically what? Uh, well, not, not tied to, to musical fads yeah. as much. Yeah. So anyway, um, the good, the true, and the beautiful have always been a part of what we're moving toward. And, and again, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, even there, uh, the arts don't come until much later. So here, here's what I'm telling you. If you're hearing new ideas and you're thinking, oh, I wonder how we can do that, every one of these ideas have been vetted, and what we do, the decisions we've made about what we're doing is to create a foundation and a broad community of people that can take the next step. But this afternoon, we're going to talk about what it takes to be a community, and, and here's where, our, where we run into a difficulty. People begin to question the community. People disregard what we do as community. So the community begins to fall apart, and somebody with a great idea, this is America, somebody with a great idea ranks it, wow, let's do that. We have nothing new that we need to do. We have a lot of old that everybody needs to buy into, like living communally and having a common purse and knowing what your child studies in seventh grade uh, at Mars Hill and being aware of the reading list and working hard at the camp and pitching your back in when people need to move. We're not solid in those simple foundations. And so what these next steps are, you know, before we can have an orchestra, some, somebody's got to play a violin. You know, somebody's got somebody's to do the, and, and I'm excited about all the strings that are happening. Ultimately, I think we'll have a beautiful orchestra. I do. Uh, we'll probably have a bell thing and all that. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so I hope I don't sound negative at all, um, but, but I did get frustrated when I was hearing the conversation because it was like, oh, okay, the thing about living together, uh, uh, excuse me, I, I think we're doing that. You know, in this, in this email conversation, these guys are from all over America, and, and like, um, you know, restoring beauty, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I'm, I'm asking you to stop and look at your community with these ideas in your head and ask yourself, what things are we already doing that need me to pitch in and give myself to so we can go to an even greater, you know, a, a greater manifestation of the kingdom of God? All right. Lots of questions. Can I pitch in? Oh, yeah, yeah. Pitch Melissa in. Melissa asked me to say. Uh, so this is, this is to clarify, since we're, we're talking quite a bit about beauty. Um, beauty is not subjective. Uh, that is a lie that uh, is propagated in our culture. Beauty is not uh, in the eye of the beholder. Uh, we tend to understand that, I think, in this, in this church when it comes to questions of truth or goodness, you know. Uh, it's very popular in our culture to say, oh, well, you know, you believe in God, but I, I, I believe there is no God. I'm an atheist, and, you know, you've got your truth, and I've got my truth, and there's no, you know, that's just the end of the story. And we understand, rightly, that that's, that's a deep mistake. No, if there is a God, there is a God, and it's there's truth there. We understand it when it comes to morality. You know, it's like, well, you know, you think that abortion's wrong, but I think it's fine. And so, you know, you do, you do morality your way, you do the good your way, and I'll do it my way. The same thing is true 
when it comes to beauty, okay? It's not, well, you know, you happen to like, uh, you know, Rembrandt, and I just like, I happen to like Picasso, and, you know, uh, I like one thing and you like the other. It's, that's, that's not how it works. Beauty is just as objective. It exists. Uh, it is in the world. Uh, you can define it. Uh, beauty, beauty is the uh, shining forth of the good uh, in our experience. Beauty is not whatever appeals to you. Um, beauty calls us up. It doesn't come our way. Beauty calls us to the good. Ultimately, God is, is the beautiful, and ultimately, uh, beauty calls us up outside of ourselves to God. It's, it's not about what satisfies you or what pleases you. Um, so just make that clarification, because Melissa thought that that might uh, have been not clear. Yeah, and about beauty. Um, Who's going to decide what is beautiful? How do we as a church say, yes, this is beautiful? And how are we trained in that? Um, this is the place that I look to people who have whatever it takes to know what is beautiful. I'm not saying that they don't have objective criteria for telling me what's beautiful. I'm just saying that's very hard for me. And of, of the three, beauty is the hardest one to define how you know something's beautiful. And so I, I think we need to be very humble and, uh, and, and again, not uh, try to assert what we think is beautiful, uh, but to really be broken and emptied before God. I think, that's where, I think that's where a lot of people get in trouble. They decide something's beautiful. They want everybody else to think it's beautiful, and it really isn't. And so I'm, uh, this is the place that I have struggled the most over the last four or five years in teaching, uh, teaching senior seminar is, is to understand the theories of beauty and, and how we really understand beauty. I think I understand how we know and how we communicate. But I don't understand beauty completely, so I just try to expose them to what is established beauty. You know, we go to... We go to uh, great art institutes. We try to go to places where uh, they have uh, great orchestras. All I can do is expose them. And so, so you will be hearing more about beauty probably in the next five to ten years. Uh, but, but be careful and be humble and be, be emptied. Uh, and, and so, yeah, beauty is objective. But if you, asked, if you gave me like 16 pieces of art and asked me which ones were beautiful and which ones weren't, if they were, if they'd already been judged, I might know that. But if you asked me to personally critique it, I'm not sure I'm discipled in beauty yet. So does that make, is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And the, the key there is, is you need to be discipled. You know, it's, it's yeah. not just, oh, I give you 10 paintings and you decide, well, you know, I like the, the, these three. That's, you haven't. That might be true. You might like three of them, but you haven't discovered what's beautiful. Uh, that's discovering which ones are objectively beautiful is something you might not be able to do. And in fact, maybe very few people in this room, if any, might be able to do it. And the same is true of of difficult moral questions. You know, we can all we can all see that murder is wrong, uh, but when it comes to you know tricky moral questions, it's it might be hard, and it might be that the right answer is, I don't know, and we need to yeah. talk about it and pray about it and be discipled and humble ourselves and discover, is it morally good or, 
or morally wrong, right? Or same thing with difficult questions of truth, right? He brought up, I don't know. There are so many things that I don't know. But there are a few things that we do know, and we've got to be faithful to the things that we do know and, and really embrace the fact that we don't know and wait for those answers. You know, the vacuum of not having an answer is often filled with falsehood. But we've got to learn to wait. And we've got to learn to live without, and we've got to learn to empty ourselves and wait rather than to fight for what we like because what we like might not be the best thing uh, for the world. So, Kent? So, if I could just make one comment, part of the reason we have the book list we do in Mars Hill is because those are the hands down most beautiful. Not every book, but that's a part of the whole idea of the Western canon. The word culture means to cultivate, right? When you cultivate something, particularly in agriculture, you're saying, I want to grow this, not that. I discard the things that I don't want to grow, and I want to grow that. The Western canon of great books is the consensus in many ways of, of what is beautiful and good and true. Um, and so at any rate, I mean, I think that's one of the things we do is we have this canon. We have this list of books, and we can go there, start there, uh, and get our kids to learn to develop their taste for what is beautiful. Um, anyway, that's just a real quick shorthand is we, we, we can look to that great book tradition and that gives us that. Yeah, yeah you, you asked for an example. Um, one of the examples that comes readily to mind is uh, the, the kids' books that we promote with our kids. If you, go to the, if you just go to the store, um, a lot of the kids' books out there are just crude um, and ugly. And I think, I think it's pretty easy to see the ugliness. Um, and if you look through them, well, are they telling objective lies? Are they, can I, can I find a sentence in there that says something false about the world or God or something? Uh, is it promoting a moral evil? Some of them are. Some of them are promoting rebellion uh, and pride and things like that. But some of them I wouldn't let my kids read just because they're, they're trash, you know? Uh, and there's so much good, beautiful children's literature out there. Um, and so many, you know, so many books we can give our kids. Why would I, why would I opt to, you know, give my son this poop book, you know? Like, what? <laughs> so that, that's just an off-the-top-of-my-head example. Um, I, would, I would add to that. Uh, to me, the, the analogy is fast food versus, you know, good home cooking, or even fine dining, fast food is designed to make you crave more. And so what we consume, it's, it's ugly food. I mean, it's totally processed. It doesn't resent, it, who knows where it came from. And so in that sense, it's not real food. It's several steps away from real food. But it is, we have been conditioned, we really want to go eat that. 
And that's how it is with beauty. And, and, and the ugly things are the things that have been designed to capture us at the quickest, most sensual you know, level of our desires. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've been conditioned to think is beautiful. It, that hamburger is beautiful. That hash brown is beautiful because I get that instant hit when I bite into it. But the beauty that we're talking about is, is a more difficult... You have to be trained. You have to have restrained your impulses to allow that beauty to capture you and to allow your taste to be <laughs> detoxed away from the, the, you know, the chemical foods and, and really appreciate something in its, in its wholeness. Um, now, I'm not an organic food eater, and I like McDonald's as much as the rest, but that, I think that's the process of, of learning to apprehend beauty. Uh, and, and I think that fast food would be ugly, according to, to Dan's definition. Matt's going to share something, but before he does, let, let, me, let me say this about the reading list at Mars Hill. Um, every, every now and then we get a parent who's like, what are they reading that for? What these guys have just said is that good literature, our literature, will teach your children what is beautiful. It will reshape their mind. It will help them become beautiful people. Um, And it is a decision that we made uh, as a community that we are going to read literature. And if if you chafe against that, then, then you make it harder for the people that have been called to make that happen. Um, now, just for those people, let me go ahead and, and say, but I am also aware of the values that you hold dear, that maybe some people that, that push, you know, more what we would call finer things. Uh, hey, you know, Richard Weaver explained the problem, <laughs> and somehow people like to talk about ideas have consequences, uh, but they don't like to do the Wendelberry thing, you know? They don't want to go plant a grapevine and then turn it into wine. Uh, they might like to drink the wine, but they don't, <laughs> you know, they don't want to put their back into it. So, so I deeply, I deeply respect uh, the men and women who are agrarian, uh, who are, um, you work hard, uh, you can see dirt under your fingernails, uh, but I also deeply respect those who are able to take us even deeper uh, and, and to lead us in, in seeing the beauty in these different works, and let me tell you, when we started as a school, I, I think everybody knows here that, that I did study classics in college. And, and what I saw there was humanity and the way it existed, and I was captured with it. But I'm just not prone to those kind of things. You know, I, 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 I can form an opinion by going through it, but I can't remember it and teach it, but I see the goodness in it. And so when it came time for us to have a school, I was desperate, and I found Martin Cawthorn. And we started our school and we, we will, our community will always have a debt. As a matter of fact, I asked Ben if he would go ahead and put Martin as one of the founders up on our page because I think we need to acknowledge that God brought Martin to us at that time. Since then, I mean, look at the table I'm sitting at, what God has added to help us do that. 
Um, and so I, I'm certainly not classically trained, but I, as a farm boy, was able to see the value of it and the need for it and uh, to do what I could to move us ahead, but God has really blessed us. Um, and I encourage those of you who are good with your hands to have something just as strong as Mars Hill that we're doing. I call it the camp, uh, where you are pulling people into that in a community way and cultivating work. Uh, but the big point here is don't, don't work against what these guys are trying to do with our kids, uh, but really submit to it and let it shape and form your kids. And that, that is really, I think, wouldn't you call that the first step in moving toward beauty? Yeah. Is, 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 is cultivating a good reading list that, that shapes you? I, I would encourage parents to read what you can of the books on the reading list. And if yeah. you wonder why you're reading them, ask and then read them. Um, I mean, I know everybody's busy, but um, we just talked about that with the Moms Friday at our co-op is read the Aeneid. Melissa. I agree. <laughs> Do you drive a lot? Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. <laughs> uh, Matt has something to say. Let me ask you guys one question before we go on. So for our parents and adults that want to read them, would you say, don't Spark notes or use spark notes? So here's what I think personally about spark notes. Well, any kind of introduction is useful. It's kind of like with the Bible. We read commentaries so we can read the Bible better. But they're never a substitute for reading the Bible. So there's great tools out there that give you introductions to material and whatnot. But to me, they're never a substitute for going and reading the Bible or going and reading the book. So by all means, use whatever tools you need to help you get oriented, but never, never let them be a substitute for the material. I'll also mention, I feel like as a professor, uh, SparkNotes has gotten really uh, SJW lately. Uh, so, oh, I used another acronym, sorry, Kent, Social Justice Warrior. Uh, and so you'll learn that uh, what the Aeneid is really trying to say is that rich white men are bad. Um, We're going to provide subtitles for Dan um, next year. <laughs> They'll be up here. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, or, or you could just dub over it, right? Um, <laughs> So, so you just got to be, I feel like a lot of those resources, when you go and you just start looking for resources out that are just on the internet, uh, a lot of it ha has taken a sharp turn left uh, in very recently. We, we are making our own and can point you in the direction of good ones. So we are writing, trying to provide introductions to a lot of the books that we do at Mars Hill, and we can also point you in the direction of really good ones. Yeah, use, um, use Memoria Press's resources. They have great resources. Uh, use ISI's resources. Use um, Joseph Pierce is the editor of a uh, literature series that we, we use that does kind of a SparkNotes thing for many of the books on the list, uh, and, and you can make sure that you have a Christian perspective on this. The Ignatius Critical Editions. And, and, and it, really, it shall be done. And really, any 
conditions, uh, they will give you a good introduction. My only point here is uh, early on when I read these things, I'm like, okay. But just as soon as I begin to understand uh, the deep revelation of the way life is and the things like courage and honor and love and sacrifice, once I knew what the idea was, and it wasn't just the story, but I knew the idea that was behind it, I'm like, whoa, it became something very much, very, a whole lot more important. Matt? A, can I say real quick, a good rule of thumb on any of these pieces of literature is most authorities today in Hollywood get it totally wrong, and it's very likely that there's a deeply Christian message and virtue underneath it. So, like Dan said, I, just assume a cynicism when people say there's feminism, there's the, the homosexual agenda, blah, blah, blah. Just assume that's wrong until you get a better source of authority. I should have brought up literature with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, um, this is going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, back to the Benedict option, one of the things, and to answer Kelly's question, I think it's worth a read, and I think it's because there's good stuff in it. Um, one of the things that he that I loved about it that he got really good was uh, about freedom, and he explained that we live in a culture in a context that defines freedom as the ability to do whatever you want to do, and 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 he said you need to really understand because you you, you are part of that generation that is inundated with that reality that freedom is being able to pursue your sensual desires your psychological desires your intellectual desires and you have to some degree an icky feeling about community when it suppresses that when it restrains that and it is a violation of your personal individual freedom and when he talks about these monasteries, and, and even today, there, there are men, you know, in their 30s. He went to the Benedictine monastery, and there were 30-year-old men that were there that were subjecting themselves to this order of communal life and accountability and set of rules. Uh, and, and what he said is, fundamentally, as Christians, what we believe is that freedom is something very different than our modern understanding of freedom. And, and the reality is that we believe that we are very sinful. Uh, and, and our own desires are very bad for us. And true freedom uh, is liberation from those desires that um, run us around into things that, that are not good for us. True expression of Human freedom is to live within the parameters and the guidelines that God has for us, and that is real health. Uh, and, and these men that showed up had been destroyed by following their desires in American society. They were ragged and they were destroyed. And so when we think about the, the rules and the, um, the ways of life, uh, and the standards uh, that we have as a community, um, you know, this is our way to freedom, uh, to be 
the men and women that God has called us to be, and we're freeing ourselves. And so when, in communicating with, like Bill was talking about, how do you communicate to these folks uh, that are in society that are going to look down on this, um, or in communicating to other people that, that say, well, I don't want to you know, not drink alcohol, or I, I don't want to send my kids to read these books. What we're inviting ourselves into is a structured order life that, that brings us uh, real freedom. So I thought that it was a good context for what Dad was talking about earlier. All right, it's 10 after. We can pick up there after we eat. Um, I, I am going to be talking about key issues in developing community and freedom uh, and discipline. is one That, that will be one of the topics. Um, and so we'll pick up. How many of you will have a comment about that or a question about that? Something came to your mind you wanted to ask or say. Say again what? Yes. Uh, as far as the, the, the whole idea of freedom being the opportunity to submit yourself to something greater than yourself. As Matt was talking, you had a thought or an idea. There should be a lot of ideas about that. How many of you guys had an idea? One? You could have an idea. Uh, yeah, okay. So keep those. Uh, it was Chad and Shannon. Uh, so keep those, and we'll, we'll come back to that, because uh, that's, that's a key issue uh, in America, uh, freedom and, and how that should be lived out and what freedom really is. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that after we eat. Tom. He, let, he walked out. Kent, will you... Uh, Give thanks for the food. <laughs>